There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Food and Sight podcast where I, Kimberly Wilson, chartered psychologist, take a look at the worlds of food and psychology and the interaction between the two. In this episode, I want to talk about something that is part observation and part theory in relation to the way that people think about food. But first, a little safety note. This material is provided for information purposes only and should not be taken as advice or instruction. This information does not replace the advice of your doctor, so please consult an appropriate healthcare professional if you believe you are experiencing a mental or physical health concern. Okay, so I want to talk about something that I'm increasingly worried about. I think I'm witnessing in my clinic a psychological shift that's been so subtle that we've stumbled into it unaware and completely defenceless. I think it's been achieved by means of tapping into our health anxieties with so-called symptoms that are so vague that they could apply to anyone. Actually, it's probably worse than that. I think we, by which I mean society by way of the media, have inaccurately turned normal aspects of biology into signs of a problem. The nature of this process is complex, so I think it'd probably be useful for me to describe a little bit of my perspective. Whilst I work with a broad range of concerns in my current clinical practice, I have previously been the clinical lead for an eating disorders recovery group, and a significant proportion of my current work is with people who have either clinical eating disorders or what is referred to as disordered eating. Eating disorders are the psychiatric conditions that everyone has heard about, anorexia nervosa, bulimia, binge eating disorder, and what is called EDNOS, that's E-D-N-O-S, which stands for eating disorder not otherwise specified. EDNOS describes a large group of people who have significant difficulty eating or thinking about food, but who don't fit into the neat criteria of anorexia, bulimia, or binge eating disorder. So for example, they might restrict food and over-exercise, but not, or not yet, have a low body weight. Or they might only binge and purge at specific times, such as around exam time or before interviews or family gatherings, times when they're particularly stressed. Anecdotally, I believe that the increasing rates of anxiety around healthy or clean eating very easily fits into the current EDNOS category. However, orthorexia, or an obsession with healthy eating, is not recognised as an eating disorder in its own right, although that is about to change. Any psychological work is a painstaking process to piece together the person's history, their current thinking and the internal or external events that might trigger or exacerbate a problem behaviour or or their mental distress. It's not enough to look at someone's diagnosis and then just apply a standard treatment. No two cases of depression are the same and the same goes for eating disorders. 
psychological therapy is fundamentally a process of pattern analysis. We're analysing the patterns in that person's thinking, their family, their peer group, the social environment, and looking for areas to intervene. What struck me in the last few years is a pattern in the descriptions of particularly worrying thoughts that seem to span different eating problems, from people who restrict to those who binge and purge. Time and again, people talk about the distress they feel of being bloated, very, very much in inverted commas. And when I ask what they mean, they say, well, after I ate, my tummy got bloated. Then they'll explain that they looked online to find the causes of bloating. And on medical sites, this can return really terrifying results such as bowel obstruction or ovarian cancer. However, most of those illnesses are easy to eliminate if you don't have the other symptoms, at which point my clients will turn to Instagram or health bloggers for answers. When looking up the causes of bloating, health blogger sites come back with a list of problems. You ate too fast, you swallowed too much air, you're eating too much salt. Essentially, you're bloated because you did something wrong. And if you were getting it right, you wouldn't be bloated. All of the causes listed suggest that any distending in the stomach is a problem, that it's a sign of something gone wrong. And many people trusting the source will take this information at face value. So when I ask about what the significance of having a round tummy after eating is, they'll invariably say one of two things. Either it means I ate too much or I've got some sort of digestive problem. And both of these are really significant issues. In the first case, there are obvious overlaps with the harmful, moralised messaging around food that is so prevalent in society. In saying, I ate too much, the person identifies a personal failure. I ate too much is a euphemised way of saying something like, I was greedy, or I was out of control, I let my appetite win. The common and subliminal foundation of this thought is that these are traits that are associated in society with people who are overweight or fat. In our society, fat is not an innocuous word. Technically, fat is an adjective for the physical state of things, but it's not used like that. We all know that it's not simply a descriptor. The word fat is used to describe emotional states. People talk about feeling fat. In fact, they'll often say as much without even stopping to consider what they mean. Invariably, fat, whether it's used to describe oneself or a criticism of someone else, is a synonym for lazy, greedy, uncontrolled, unattractive, undesirable, or many other similar words. As such, it's very difficult to be or feel fat and hold on to self-esteem. In my own online search, this state of mind was really well described by a member of a pro-Anna forum. She said, I'm really desperate at this point because being so bloated makes me feel fat and guilty when I haven't even eaten. Someone else on that same forum said, even if I eat extremely little, I still get bloated. Some go further and they compare the body after eating to a pregnant belly and, you know, maybe that's fine, but to people who are particularly anxious about body shape, body size and body image, this can be really problematic. They talk about it being embarrassing, frustrating and shameful. On one health blog, I found the following exchange. So the follower writes the comment, I have the prego belly too, so I have pregnant belly too, and I've been struggling with it for over two years. It's part of what triggered an eating disorder. I can't wear anything fitted, it sucks. I wanna cry all the time because of it. 
So if you guys figure anything out, I'd love to hear about it. I spent so much money trying to cure this, getting nowhere. I even did body ecology diet, really strict with all the supplements, probiotics, etc., for a while and no cure. So I can totally relate to you guys. You aren't alone. The bloggers reply, thanks, we feel your pain. Our stomachs usually get worse than what's shown on the blog, but slowly getting less and less intense at most times. It was what started our eating disorder many years ago as well, as we hated feeling like it. So we cut back on eating, but that never helped. What these comments describe is very much what I see in clinic, that the vague term bloating is confused with fatness and all of the judgments associated with that. There are serious, I think, psychological and behavioral risks of this incorrect association when bloating is linked to either goodness or illness. So let's have a little look at them. The psychological risk of associating bloating to fatness is that it promotes a sense of confusion and guilt, which as you can see in these examples, can develop into a self-directed criticism and anger that alone can harm self-esteem. The associated behavioural risk is of dietary restriction. Instead of linking the feelings of guilt to the external messages we've been fed about food and bodies, these people have associated the feeling of guilt to some internal transgression or personal failure. As a consequence, instead of retaliating against the messages, they turn on themselves. Of course, it's not the bloating per se that triggered the eating disorder, but the beliefs and moral judgments associated with it. Bloated equals fat, fat equals lazy, lazy equals bad. And with enough repetition and enough reinforcement from social media, friends, family, magazines and supposed health websites, there very quickly develops an automatic link between feeling bloated and badness. And it's this badness, this guilt and shame that a subsequent eating disorder or dietary restriction is hoped to remedy. On the other hand, thinking that a roundedness after eating is a sign of some kind of digestive issue brings its own consequences. First, the psychological risk is, is health anxiety. Is there something wrong with me? This can drive a preoccupation or an over-awareness of physical symptoms. Believing that there's something wrong can lead to a hypervigilance for other potential signs. So people start looking for anything that might be a sign of an illness. And this can lead to misinterpretation or overinterpretation of other normal body peculiarities that can become very stressful and self-perpetuating. Though the issue now isn't so much about shame or guilt, the behavioural outcome is the same, and that's dietary restriction. People will read or assume that they have a sensitivity, intolerance or allergy to some aspect of their diet and then try to eliminate it. Ironically, this might cause nutritional deficiencies or changes in the gut microbiome that could actually create digestive problems. So that's the broad problem as I see it. So how do we get here? This is the most important question because if what I think I'm witnessing is even partially correct, then we'll need to understand how we got here in order to help people to undo the harm or protect themselves from falling into the same trap. I think there are a number of factors that individually seem fairly innocuous, but together create an environment in which normal bodies and normal changes within those bodies are medicalised and pathologised into health problems that need to be remedied. Those factors are, one, the diet and fitness obsession with thinness, low body fat, flat abs and six packs. 
Two, the repetitive use of the term bloating in advertising. Three, the excessive and ostentatious images of flat apps on social media, even and perhaps especially on accounts that are not associated with fitness. Number four, the rise in awareness of the gut-brain axis and of genuine digestive and autoimmune disorders such as celiac disease, Crohn's disease and IBS. And number five, the reduction in society of people eating together. And so I'm going to work through all of these very briefly just to give you a sense of what I think is contributing to the overall problem. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. first part of the story is what lays the foundation on which this particular house of cards is built. The culture of narrow and arbitrary body standards, which equate thinness to health, is hugely problematic. But just a little bit of digging under the surface will throw up the flaws in this thinking. Thinness is not synonymous with health. You only need to think about people with restrictive eating disorders to understand that. They may be thin, but they are very far from healthy. And it's certainly not the case that the thinner they are, the healthier they become. Health, real health, is not that simple an equation. On top of that, we have the extensive moralising around food, which instead of allowing food choices to be a decision between hunger and satiety, turns it into a choice between right and wrong, good or bad. Rounding this off is the socialising, particularly for girls and women, but increasingly for men as well, of compliance of being good, of doing what is expected and giving people what they want. When that socialised obedience meets the moralising around good and bad foods and good and bad bodies, we've taken our first steps down a dangerous road. In advertising, you often hear the question, are you feeling bloated? The real cleverness of this question is in its apparent innocence. It's presented as a general, impersonal inquiry but actually engages quite a cynical but common two-step marketing model. One, create a solution. And then step two, invent a problem. This method has been successfully used for many years by marketers and ad agencies with a broad range of products to sell, from mouthwash to diamonds, 
And it all starts by taking a vague, common and usually harmless experience and making people anxious about it. In the 1920s, Listerine built demand for their floor cleaner by creating anxiety about a problem that hadn't existed before. In advertisements for their repurposed product, they suggested that having bad breath would reduce your chances of finding love. Your breath would mean that you were deemed unattractive and undesirable. They found and used the obscure medical term halitosis to add a sense of medical credibility to their marketing campaign and consequently to raise anxiety. After that, sales of Listerine exploded and it continues to be a brand leader a hundred years later. Cellulite is another relevant example. Cellulite isn't a problem. It's not caused by a buildup of toxins or water or impure thoughts. What's been called cellulite is just a feature of how biologically fat is stored in women's bodies. That's why men don't have it. Even men with lots of extra padding don't have cellulite. Yet up to 98% of women do. Cellulite is literally a feature of being a woman. But it was turned into a problem for which spas and beauty treatments were the solution. And now millions of pounds are spent on absolutely useless creams, detox diets, body brushing, pointless exercises and even surgery trying to eliminate something that is a natural feature of a woman's body. A version of this strategy is used with the term bloating to sell yogurts and other products such as books and diet plans. What it does is to take a common sign of digestion, suggest that it might be a symptom of a problem and present a purchasable solution. I mean, what do we even mean by bloating? Importantly, this crucial question is never answered in any of these advertisements. All they do is ask you the question backgrounded with the image of a deliberately enviable, completely flat stomach. The inference is that anything that differs from this image is bloating, otherwise why would they be asking? And the message is that if your stomach does not look like this, then you're bloated and it's therefore problematic. Or to put it another way, if you want to increase your chances of having a stomach like this, you need to buy this product. The third factor is the relentless posting and revering of hashtag flat abs or ab goals on social and traditional media. I spoke on the last episode with registered nutritionist Laura Thomas about the backstory behind those images, so I won't repeat that here, but to say that never before in our history have we had such constant opportunity for self-comparison with such a skewed image of what is normal. Moving on to ideas about digestive health. The current cultural obsession with digestive health is a relatively new phenomenon, which encapsulates our many overlapping strands of legitimate clinical research, questionable product marketing and human health anxiety. The field of gut microbiome and gut brain access research is a fascinating and important one, which has the potential to genuinely revolutionise our understanding of health and disease and our approach to medicine. It's an area that I follow closely as it forms part of the assessment criteria for my clinical practice, an approach to psychological illness that takes into account the influence of the body on the brain and psychological dimensions. In fact, I've interviewed and put my questions to some of the world's leading researchers in microbiology, immunology and longevity to gain a fuller understanding of the opportunities and complexities of this area. All of the researchers, most of whom have been working on understanding gut health for decades, share my enthusiasm and add a note of caution. 
we are some way off from understanding how the gut interacts with the brain and we should be careful not to too hastily ascribe a physical symptom or disease to a digestive or microbial problem. This call for moderation was, however, largely ignored by those whose job it is to sell us food products. So we're left with having to try to work out whether it's a sign or a symptom. The artificially generated anxiety around bloating has even started to seep into the medical field. An editorial was published last year in the journal Current Opinions in Gastroenterology by Dr. Eamon Quigley. Dr. Quigley is a man who knows a lot about guts and digestion. He's the former president of the American College of Gastroenterology and the World Gastroenterology Organization, and is current director of the Center for Digestive Disorders at the Whale Cornell Medical College. In the article, he cautions, however, it is vital to remember before launching into any discussion of these diets, or indeed any consideration of the pathophysiology of a common disorder, such as IBS, that one must first consider the more fundamental factor in the precipitation of the gastrointestinal symptoms and gut distress on or soon after food ingestion, namely the physiological response to food. All physiological processes in the gut, including motility, secretion and blood flow, respond to food intake or the anticipation thereof in order to maximise digestion and absorption. So that roundedness or bloating or distension isn't just a lump of food in your belly or the sign of some sort of digestive problem, it's your digestive system getting on with the process of digestion. Later in the paper, he describes how anxiety can create and exacerbate abdominal discomfort after eating. And you can imagine how this situation is made even worse if the thing that the person is worried about is food. Finally, he describes how hormones and neurotransmitters help to move food through the gut, and of course, how the gut microbiome plays a key role in digestion and distension. He says, a byproduct of bacterial fermentation is the liberation of gases, for example, nitrogen, hydrogen, carbon dioxide, and methane. An increase in the number of gas-producing organisms may cause flatulence and bloating. So after you eat, you will bloat as a normal byproduct of healthy digestion. And this is relieved with a fart. <laughs> Anywhere up to 20 times a day is completely normal. So as Quigley states in the title of the paper, it's not all allergy and intolerance. And finally, I want to make just a quick comment on eating together. I think the final piece of this puzzle is linked to shifts in our dining habits. In the West or westernised countries, especially in cities, the number of single person households is on the rise. And even when people do live together, it's likely to be a house share with non-relatives who have different occupations and therefore different eating schedules. Living in a shared house may make you reluctant to spend a long time preparing meals. So meals may be quick or brought in and eaten alone in a bedroom. One of the outcomes of this is that people who may be anxious about bloating after eating for any of the reasons I've mentioned earlier, are deprived of the normalising experience of someone else saying, yeah, me too, at which point they might have been saved anxious moments of online searching and worry. So what difference does it make? Why should I care about whether people are being duped into eating one brand of yoghurt over another? Well, frankly, I don't. But I'm also not in the habit of commenting on things 
that I don't consider comment worthy. I certainly don't make a habit of researching and writing essays about issues that, in the grand scheme of things, don't matter in the slightest. To be clear, on rare occasions, bloating is a cause for genuine concern, particularly if it's associated with weight loss, nausea, vomiting or blood in stools. But most of what is being called bloating in social and traditional media is the normal physiological response to food. And the demonization of normal digestion is having serious harmful consequences for a growing group of people. And without wanting to sound alarmist, I do believe that it's contributing to disordered eating and eating disorders. At a recent expert panel, I was asked about the role of devices and social media on mental health. And I said that the ubiquity of social media is in effect a global mental health experiment. It is really the late millennials, those born around the year 2000, who will be the first generation to have had access to smartphones and social media apps for as long as they've been old enough to understand what they are. The rise of personalised advertising means that this group have been exposed to more targeted messaging than any previous generation. Weight loss clubs will, for example, specifically target young women directly and repeatedly. Any messages that focus on body image are being sent directly to those most vulnerable to having body anxiety. This generation is bombarded with images of apparent bodily perfection and judgments about anything that differs from that norm. Most importantly, because of their age at first exposure, this is all that they know and they may have very little to compare it to. And their parents who grew up without marketing devices in their pockets may underestimate the intensity of the messages their children are exposed to. When they become anxious about their health or body image, these young people will turn to social media for answers and prescriptions. In listing all the potential harmful causes of bloating, what none of these sites mention, because most of their authors are not health professionals, is that after eating, some distension or bloating is absolutely normal. And the failure to highlight the naturalness of this reaction is harmful. When people are led to believe that a rounded belly is synonymous with bloating, they are more likely to restrict the types and amount of food they eat, deliberately undereating so as not to provoke the physical signs of having eaten enough. So, in summary, I'm seeing more and more people expressing anxiety about the normal and expected physical changes that take place after they've eaten an adequate amount of food. This anxiety takes two forms. One, concern that they've eaten too much, and two, a worry about digestive health. The psychological outcomes of these worries is either self-criticism or anxiety. The behavioural outcomes, though, are the same. Fear of eating and dietary restriction. My belief is that we got here through a combination of a culture obsessed with body shape and dieting, the use of vague terminology in product marketing, greater public interest in the gut-brain axis, and scaremongering social media symptom checklists. How do we get out? Well, we reassure ourselves that a degree of distension or bloating after eating is absolutely to be expected. We remind ourselves that we don't need to avoid the bloat. We need to accept that daily shifts in the appearance of our bodies is absolutely natural. And we need to remind people that their body is their own and support them to take care of it without comparing it to generic and irrelevant body standards. There probably isn't much we can do about marketing. Companies will try to make money and they will prey on our anxieties to do so. But we can ask that health and lifestyle bloggers 
be more responsible with their output and make the effort to ensure that their content is well informed and balanced. And that's all I have. I hope that's been useful to some of you. If you know someone who might benefit from listening to this episode, please do slide it their way. And make sure that you subscribe so you don't miss any of the future episodes. Let me know your thoughts by adding a comment on Instagram, where I am at food and psych, that's F-O-O-D-A-N-D-P-S-Y-C-H. I'd love to hear from any mental health practitioners, nutritionists or dietitians about whether this is something that they recognise in their practice too. That just leaves me to thank you all very much for listening and until next time, I wish you the very best of health. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.